This is the Hindsight Podcast, a production by the Army Foundry Platform at Fort Liberty, North Carolina. I'm your host, Vu Tran, joined by Bradley Marvel, doctrine writer at Tradeout G2 and the author of Army Training Publication 7-100.3, Chinese Tactics. We pick up our conversation from last time and dive into a discussion on the current state of the People's Liberation Army's multi-decade-long modernization efforts. With that said, let's pick up where we left off. So uh, earlier you had touched on a few aspects of the PLA's modernization efforts. I'd like to expand on that a little bit more. Can you describe for us how those efforts have largely played out and what the focuses are? So earlier you had talked about how a large number of GOs had basically been purged over the last 20 years. Um, what were what are some of the other aspects of this modernization effort in addition to the stuff we, we can kind of clearly see, which is just an investment into new technologies and new equipment? I like to, if we're looking at this as a timeline, I like to point at that the series of reforms in 2015 as being the the ones that really kicked off the way the PLA looks today. And the big aspect there, the most important thing was the establishment of what we would call a joint force. This is what we did back in 1946. This is where we said, hey, now, or 1947, I'm sorry. The, we now have uh, our different services. The services are all equal. The services have the following responsibilities. And now this is how the Department of Defense is organized now and forever. The Chinese did pretty much the same thing in 2015. The, the way it was organized prior to that was the PLAA dominated everything. The PLAA had an Air Force and a Navy that were sort of distant participants in military stuff. And the Army, had a, it was a big political player. It was a big economic player. It, it was uh, just a uh, hugely overgrown mess. And so you think about what establishing this tr- joint force with joint equities did to the various services. It, the results are, are pretty easy to to guess at right the army got way smaller very very quickly and that coincided with the army getting all sorts of cool new gear so that that was two things happening simultaneously we're getting smaller we're getting lighter um we're professionalizing and we're getting lots of new equipment so we're we're moving away from the 10,000 tanks and and 10 million peasants model to a much more modern much more uh capable professional force uh that being said, there was a lot of uh, heartburn with that as as hundreds of thousands of of soldiers were no longer needed and were you know dismissed or or whatever. At the same time, we've seen the Air Force, the PLF, uh, become much larger, completely overhaul its inventory of aircraft, and become real innovators in things like air-to-air missiles, uh, radars, and data links. And these are all the things that are most important going forward in the the air domain these uh the where they have focused their development has has been pretty much spot on in my opinion and so they wound up with a a much more modern much more capable air force in a very short period of time the big winner if you'll call it that from this reorganization was the navy the PLAN has gone on what's arguable. It's certainly one of the largest shipbuilding programs in history, definitely the largest since World War II. It is now the world's largest surface fleet by number of combatants, which is kind of shocking considering not that long ago, it was just a bunch of riverine boats and a bunch of rusty old Soviet subs. Now they have a, a huge number of modern, very capable, very big surface combatants. And they're continuing to grow. They're they're not. They actually are uh, pulling back the throttle a bit just because they're starting to run out of money. But um, the ship shipbuilding program continues and and doesn't look to to stop anytime soon. Um, the old second artillery became the uh, PLARF, the rocket force. So that's a that's a unique thing in. China, we do not have a separate rocket force, right? That's not, not a service in the United States, but in the PLA, that is a service, just like the Army, Navy, Air Force. And they do all the missiles, all the, or most of the missiles anyway, the uh, ballistic and cruise missile platforms and their associated uh, support and ISR and whatnot. 
Um, and then the, the other, the last two services that I think are, are most interesting, uh, Joint Logistics Support Force, another service level organization, you can probably deduce what their job is in a joint construct. Uh, it's a very new, very nascent thing. The Chinese were very bad at sustainment logistics for a very long time. They have a long way to go with that. But establishing the JLSF is a good first step in modernizing your sustainment backbone. And then the last thing is the strategic support force. And this is something that I like to call out as being an example of, of Chinese military thought becoming innovative, becoming creative. There isn't another military organization anywhere in the world like the strategic support force. I characterize the, their task as all of the non-kinetic things that can influence the battle and the, even the, you know, the competition phase. So they have responsibilities for space, cyber, information, stuff like that. It's all housed in this one service level organization. Whereas you look at how the DOD does it, all of our uh, information type stuff is spread out all throughout all of the services. And it's, it's the result of kind of piecemeal development over a long period of time. The PLA said, hey, we're not doing it like that. We're making our own unique thing. And we're giving them a great deal of power, a great deal of authority to, to do all of this non-kinetic stuff. And I, I think it's a very well thought out concept. I think it's, you know, like the logistics support force, it's very, very new and very untested. And there are a lot of uncertainties about how it would actually operate. But I think the basic idea is, is very sound. So the uh, using, let's use all that as a backdrop for modernization. Now, uh, what does a joint force look like? A modern joint force, it, it's professionalized, right? The, the PLA's officers are no longer just politically reliable, military incompetent folks. These are our life career military professionals that go through academies, they go through PME, they go through rigorous training, and they their focus is on war fighting. It's no longer on, on uh, supporting the party and, and propaganda efforts and whatnot. They're getting better. It seems like every day they're getting better at joint integration about how their various services are going to fight together. Their joint doctrine is very well thought out. It's very sophisticated. Actually executing the joint doctrine is something that we, they, they cannot execute a lot of the things that they've uh, laid out as, as critical capabilities as yet, but it seems like they get better at it on almost a daily basis. And this is a, uh, uh, focus on uh, our focus of so many exercises that we watch very carefully. The particularly the ones that we see out in uh, all of these various training areas in the Western Pacific, and that's with a view to, towards executing an amphibious operation, the most joint of the operations. Right, you can't do an amphibious operation if you're not fighting joint, and that's driving a lot of what we're seeing with uh, with these. Uh, the ever-evolving joint structure is getting better at that that incredibly difficult task of of mounting an amphibious operation. And last, it, the this basic idea of being legitimately expeditionary. The uh, the old PLA they fought their wars in China, or a, a few kilometers over the border in Vietnam, I guess, or North Korea. I don't know if that counts as being. Uh, at home or not, but um, they they didn't go outside of their their very very limited geographic area, and that does not align with what the China dream, the grand vision of China going forward. They recognized they needed to be able to project power, military power anywhere in the world, and they needed a force that's able to do that. So that's a lot of the basis behind building this gigantic blue water navy. That is the biggest reason behind the substantial expansion of the planned Marine Corps that it's a six brigade uh, Marine Corps. Now that's the centerpiece of their expeditionary capability. Um, the expansion of, of joint air and, and non-kinetic stuff and all of, all of these components that are necessary to potentially put a light mechanized force anywhere in the world to enforce Chinese interests, whatever they might be. So that's, that's uh, I call it the, that 2015 um, mark on the wall as, as that's most important as far as modernization goes. But um, the other thing, and I say mark on the wall, like, yeah, that, that's a thing we can, we can say that happened. And um, 
the uh, the other half of that story is the PLA is a moving target, and it is very frustrating for those of us who, for instance, write about the PLA. You write something about the PLA, and then well, a week later, it's changed because they are constantly changing. They are constantly evolving. There's a, a new widget, a new uh, concept, a new training environment. It's, it's a constant flow of stuff. And so when we say it's a moving target, it's assessments that we made weeks ago are now obsolete. And that's just part of this this modernization cycle is this relentless pursuit of of new stuff. And it's we'll see that slowing down, I think, over the uh, the next five to ten years, just because they're starting to run out of things to innovate. You know, they're starting to reach the cutting edge um, as opposed to to um, trying to play catch up. But that's uh, the culture of reform runs deep, and they the PLA loves reform, and they love uh, changing themselves. And so, um, in view of modernization, that's, that's what they're going for is it, we're going to modernize ourselves through, uh, constant relentless reform. So, you know, on, on this aspect of modernization, right. Um, I think the implied requirement is that you just need more highly educated folks to operate high, like all this new technology. Um, how is the PLA doing on that end of it? How are they meeting their recruitment challenges? Is military culture in chess members the U.S.? Is there kind of, is it looked highly upon to be a member of the PLA in China in the same way that it's looked highly upon in the United States, for instance? I'll, uh, I'll start that answer with uh, misquoting a Chinese proverb. It's something along the lines of, you don't... Uh, use good nail or you don't use good steel for nails and you don't use good people for soldiers, something along those lines. It, it, that tells you, uh, gives you an idea of how, in what esteem the, the military is held in China. Um, I think that's, that's a little obsolete. Now the, the PLA, they, they were in a bad, they were in bad shape for a long time, particularly after Tiananmen square, the PLA's reputation was not very good in Chinese culture. And, it is rising. It's getting better, but it's it's nowhere. You know, I think military officers are still the most trusted profession in the United States and have been for a long, long time. So they have no nowhere near that level of esteem. But um, man, uh, I for a long time did not appreciate the seriousness of the demographic crisis that's facing China right now, and it is this is affecting all aspects of their culture, not just the military. So I'll, I mean, we could talk for a long time about all these demographic issues, but I'll focus on the military stuff. Like you said, they need healthy, educated, quality recruits, just like any military does, right? We can't be, be sending off malnourished, illiterate people to go execute multi-domain precision warfare. Those, those two things don't work together. So the efforts that they are making to recruit the high quality folks that they need are enormous and they are also a, a serious struggle. And it's the same struggle that we see in the United States and elsewhere in the West. It's, you know, the, it, call it a paradox. The, the people who are more qualified for military service tend to be less interested in military service. And that's the Chinese are struggling with a, the same dynamic, um, both with enlisted folks and with their officers. So part of these demographic issues are played out in where PLA recruits come from. And a really good example of that is certain areas of China, particularly uh, mainly rural areas, are vastly overrepresented in the PLA, while the uh, more wealthy, more uh, modern city dweller folks are underrepresented. And when you look at how China has allocated things like education resources, health resources and whatnot, it's heavily focused on the cities. They have this whole huge cohort of people out in the countryside that are literally called the left behinds because they've been left behind by this 
the nationwide modernization of China the last uh, several decades. And from the PLA's perspective, that kind of sucks, right? Because you're taking a lot of your recruits from this uh, increasingly left behind population. You're not really able to make inroads into the the more educated, healthier uh groups of people that live in the cities and and the when you look at these trend lines uh demographically speaking it does not get any better in the future the without major structural reforms both throughout china and in the pla specifically it's only going to get worse going forward so uh and this is now being exacerbated by china's increasingly severe budget issues um, which are, uh, until relatively recently, I did not realize how severe this issue is, but it's becoming a, I won't say crisis, but bordering on a crisis situation in China. And and the PLA is going to be on the chopping block for the first time in, in a long time. They really haven't had to, they have not been resource constrained for decades. And they're starting to look at a more resource constrained environment. They're going to have to make some difficult decisions um, and recruiting and retention is going to be one of them. So when we look at how this affects the PLAs, the quality of their units, the quality of their recruits, even if you're you're bringing in someone with a lower education level uh, who's not as healthy, et cetera, that's not something you can't overcome, right? That's something if you you feed them well, you educate them, you train them well, you can still build a good soldier, even from someone who's starting uh, a little bit further back. But uh, the Chinese term of service for their uh, conscripts, pseudo conscripts, is only two years. You're not changing anyone into a useful multi-domain precision warfare soldier in two years. So that's a really good example of, of a major structural change that probably needs to happen um, to head off a, a uh, demographic catastrophe. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll uh, I think that's probably the uh, limit of the military stuff there, but yeah. Um, for the audience in general, if you're interested in this stuff, just Google uh, Chinese demographics and start reading. And it, there's so much uh, it's call it information. Also, you know, the um, Chinese disinformation, but um, it's a fascinating subject, and it's it's something that is going to become increasingly relevant, not just in China, but for the whole world over the next ten years or so. So, you know, on that, the you know the after effects of the one child policy, right? So, a lot of families are down to one one successor. So, if that person you know gets killed in war, that's the end of that entire family line for for a lot of families. Uh, is that a consideration that you guys have looked into or do you guys assess that it won't really play too much of a factor in terms of in terms of China's will to continue fighting? So, you know, once casualty rates, if they raise to 50,000 or 100,000, you know, from a Western sense, that's terrible. But, you know, those are from families with perhaps multiple children when the context is your family only has one successor. And the country as a whole is taking fifty or hundred thousand casualties. What what's that effect going to be on the the psyche of the country? Is that something you guys look at, or is that something uh, not not as important in your view? Yeah, no, uh, we definitely we that's uh we have a whole uh or call it will to fight. Um, it's a it's unbelievably imprecise science. It's incredibly difficult to to try to quantify that. Um, the, the one child thing, I, that's, we don't get the impression that that's, uh, a really big defining issue. I, it's broader than that. I think that there is, a an impression and that this is informed in large part by what we saw in Korea, which is, it, this makes it not incorrect for what happened in Korea, but an impression that the Chinese are, are willing and able to absorb huge casualties and are immune or at least uh, uh, less susceptible to the effects of, of huge casualties. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that I think that the uh, large casualty numbers in a uh, not politically popular conflict is going to have significant political consequences in China in a way that it, it would not have in previous generations. And that's not just due to one child. I mean, that that's a factor, but I think it's, it's, you could point at 
more so just the uh, general comfort level of Chinese society now. This is a society that is largely has a, a huge middle class and has uh, used to the creature comforts of, of a modern industrialized society. But that, that will to fight question, if you're looking at at the PLA suffering some manner of uh, mass casualties as the result of a uh, particularly a failed attack, but you know, it's some sort of event, catastrophic event for the PLA. Um, the impact of that on, uh, on recruiting and retention and, and all of that stuff that I just talked about would mo would be, it would be very difficult to overcome. And that's one of those things that, the modern Chinese government and the PLA has no experience with. They have not uh, had major casualty events since 1979. So there's there's very little institutional knowledge about how to deal with that. And the uh, Chinese government in general is as closely as they try to maintain control over the information environment. That's a, a much more difficult task than just shutting down uh, you know, Western movies or or e-protesters in Hong Kong. This is a, uh, thousands of Chinese families that are now out a kid and are, this is not a thing that's happened in, in a long, long time. And um, my very unsatisfying takeaway is the results of that are going to be very unpredictable. And I realize that's not saying anything, you know, particularly insightful but the main takeaway there is the cpc hates unpredictability it makes them very very uncomfortable and that is avoiding unpredictability can shape behavior and for an organization like that so yeah it the the will to fight thing that's uh it part in with taiwan too it's uh that's something that we look at a, a whole lot and uh it's we've even tried coming up with uh with methodologies to to assign a number to it and i personally i find all of it kind of uncompelling I, I think it's just too hard to really uh to distill down to a single idea but but yeah it's absolutely a significant factor and and in particular for for audiences that are are just diving into china for the first time i'd encourage you to not make that assumption that yeah the chinese are are willing or more willing to accept mass casualties than a, a Western army or, or, uh, you know, armies in other parts of the world. All right. Um, I'd like to, uh, at this point, touch on some concepts that were brought up in the ATP, um, in terms of the PLA's doctrine. So one of those is this evolution of the people's war concept. So from its original version to the current version of people's war in conditions of infer missionization and then their future goal of transitioning that to intelligentized warfare so when i was reading through that part of the atp uh there's just question marks everywhere as to what what that really means and kind of where that where the pla is going with that and how that would affect you know us or an s2 trying to model um some sort of pla like uh, red force for an exercise. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, people's war, you know, that, that was, that's Mao's thing. That's the whole uh, tradition of active defense, which I, I've gotten much more into, um, Chinese history recently. And they're the way they fought the Sino-Japanese war, the Chinese front in world war two is absolutely incredible. It's a fascinating area that I don't think gets nearly enough attention. Um, so th there's my soapbox on Chinese contributions to World War II. Uh, so that people's work came from that and from the Chinese Civil War, and it worked very, very well. It was a very well thought out thing that that got the job done in uh, unbelievably difficult circumstances. And uh, their gradual movement away from people's war has been a long and difficult one. And it was realized first, Hey, we, we need modern mechanized forces and then realizing, Hey, we need uh, modern command and control. We need to integrate other domains and all that stuff. And so people's war in conditions of informationization or informationized warfare, that was the concept that was in place when I wrote the ATP. And the, the way I characterize that is, PLA had thought at that point, hey, we're we're at the 
reaching the mastery level when it comes to basic fire maneuver stuff, modern maneuver warfare. What are we going to do next? Well, we're going to start looking at the non-kinetic stuff. We're going to start uh, trying to dominate the information environment and the electromagnetic environment, all that stuff. Um, and that's where, for example, the strategic support force came from. It's informationized warfare built into a uh, or conceptualized into a military formation. The when the ATP was written, the future concept for Chinese warfare was at that time called intelligentization. And what intelligentization was envisioned as is at some point in the future, we're going to adopt things like AI and robotics and uh, big data and quantum computing and all these other buzzwords. And it's going to revolutionize the way we fight wars. And the Chinese army is going to be at the forefront of this revolution. And by being at the forefront of this revolution, we will surpass all of our competitors and become uh, the world-class military that we've always envisioned ourselves to be. So that was very, very nebulous stuff, right? The Chinese love buzzwords just as much as we do. They love, uh, you know, talking tech and all that stuff just as much as we do. We we share that that particular uh, love. So that that's when the ATP was written. That was what we were working with. Was informationization is now intelligentization is the future. Uh, since the ATP is written. We have become uh, aware of their new operational concept, which I mentioned several times already, multi-domain precision warfare, which as cool as it is that we're, we're getting this glimpse into Chinese doctrine, it drives me a little bit crazy because it now means the ATP is obsolete. But, all right, we have our new generation Chinese doctrine, multi-domain precision warfare. I, the way I characterize that is it takes some of these concepts we saw in intelligentized warfare and scales them back a little bit. Like maybe AI isn't going to solve all of our problems. Uh, you know, if robotics is a good thing. We're integrating it as quickly as we can, but it's also not going to solve all of our problems. So we need an interim solution. And that's what multi-domain precision warfare is looking at. The, the big difference between multi-domain precision warfare and informationized warfare is they establish a whole lot of new domains. They use domains in the same way that we do. We have you know our land, sea, air, uh, space, et cetera. Uh, the PLA is added to that. Uh, they identify information as a domain. They identify cognitive uh, function, the cognitive domain. And uh, they identify the biological domain, which I always thought was a little weird for uh, a military to do, but the PLA calls the biological domain a, a discrete domain. Um, so we have all these new domains that's outlining this new doctrine. And the basic idea is how we are going to fight simultaneously in all these domains and find the opportunities that we need to exploit and also protect ourselves against incursions from all these different domains. So it's a whole, the basic idea is really similar to uh, our MDR, multi-domain ops concept. It's just assigning a lot more things domain status and looking more at, uh, for the from the Chinese perspective, how this joint force is going to get after fighting in all of these domains uh, simultaneously and synchronize operations across different domains and all that. So that's kind of that's where we're at right now as far as as these uh, operational concepts go. Um, MDPW is a really big deal in the the Chinese doctrine watcher community as you might imagine um but intelligentized warfare hasn't gone away it's still a thing that uh it's talked about a lot it's still they still envision a point and ai has kind of become the centerpiece of this china has absolute uh concrete plans to become the world leaders in ai and this is a really good example of military civil fusion that i mentioned earlier they want they have their civil industry that's working really hard on AI projects and simultaneously, how can we militarize these things to do things like speed decision cycles, to make better decisions, to, to help our officers that might not have the same level of uh, military art competence to compete with their Western counterparts uh, through the use of, of technology and AI and whatnot. So all that stuff's still in play. It's just, uh, we call it less, uh, maybe kind of taking a step back from, um, 
from the the grand idea of a fully intelligentized army and saying actually what we need in the the near term is a a legitimate multi-domain army but yeah the, it's ai in particular ai and robotics are the two uh the two big future tech things that they still believe will will uh lead them to greatness in the future at some point so it sounds like they realize they bit off more than it could chew with intelligentized warfare so they're they're setting more realistic goals for the short and medium term yeah, I think you can characterize it like that. Although I don't think that it wasn't a deliberate decision. I, a lot of the uh, the question marks we have with this stuff is it comes out of a lot of different sources. Um, it for the U.S. military, we have one source, right? We have uh, uh, we're very proprietary with the, what we publish and whatnot. It's not really that way in China. So the it's not like there was some general giving a clear guidance to hey, pull back this intelligentized warfare concept. It's more like, hey, we're reading things that Chinese uh, military thinkers are writing, and it looks like we've reached the conclusion that we need modern concept before we're going to realize all of this intelligentized stuff. So, you know, with that, there's also another concept called tactical system warfare. Is there a Western concept similar to it that readers could reference as they're trying to get a better idea of what tactical system warfare actually is yeah system warfare in general is uh it's one of those terms that's so widely used it's almost meaningless and it it also is a term that very much describes the way western militaries want to fight that is, we want to employ systems of systems. We want to target uh, key nodes that degrade enemy capabilities. Uh, we want to take down networks by striking at the control centers of networks. And by networks, I don't just mean C2. I mean any any network of people that's working together. We want to uh, disaggregate those people. That's been the American way of war for a long time. And the uh, Chinese thought on that is... Uh, is not substantially different. So that that's system warfare in general, right? The the big grand idea. Um, when we look at how it's applied at the tactical level, it's a little bit different. And the main takeaway there, and this is super important for uh, folks like Brigade S2s or or anyone who's working at the tactical level, is an obsession with task organizing. The, the way the PLAA wants to fight is task organize absolutely everything and do it competently, do it quickly, and, and execute all of that stuff seamlessly. That's the, the centerpiece of tactical system warfare. So what we call task organizing, that's just they have uh, a bunch of different names for it, uh, creating units that they call either ops groups, operations groups, or combat groups, or uh, it, there's a... a a bunch of different uh, potential terms, which is one of the things that gets very confusing when we talk about this stuff to, to new audiences. But the basic idea is actually very simple. And it's all it is, is getting the right capabilities to the right organizations. That's all that, that tactical system warfare is designed to do. The way this came about is the, the Chinese did kind of, had kind of the same evolution that we did um, when we were doing the FCS, the future combat systems developments, maybe, and 15 years ago, something like that, um, we wanted a Lego army at that time. We wanted to be able to take units from anywhere and assemble them into a, a, a task-organized entity and send it off to do its thing. And we discovered that's actually really, really hard to do. There's actually a lot of value in the organic structure of a unit in living together and training together, uh, habitual relationships between traditionally task-organized units. All of that stuff is very important. So the, the Lego army thing didn't work. The PLA had exactly the same experience. They tried to do the Lego army thing, and it didn't work for them either for the exact same reasons. So instead, what they came up with is a, a system that looks pretty familiar to, to Western uh, particularly if you've ever been on a, a brigade or division staff and, and done asset allocations out to subordinate units, you just take you want to keep a, a brigade or a battalion as the centerpiece of 
the group. So you keep that that fighting core intact, the folks that live and, and work and train together. And then you augment them with stuff from outside. It could be more artillery. It could be more maneuver. It could be more EW. It could be some rotary wing assets. It Whatever you have available, doctrinally, often coming down from the group army, which is the high, next higher echelon above uh, the combined arms brigade. And you build these task-organized groups. Uh, so when I say this is aimed at at uh, tactical echelon S2s, this is a very important takeaway. The the way they name these groups is by the mission that the group is assigned. So as a part of an operation, think about what, the various things that happen in a in an offensive operation. You have a a, a uh, advanced guard kind of group, and then you have a um, a fixing formation, you have a, a breach formation, you have an exploitation formation, you have a fires formation. All that stuff is a part of a, the basic offensive operation for every army in the world. The, the way the PLA organizes these groups is they give them the name of the thing that they're going to be doing as a part of this operation. So for instance, the fixing group is called the frontline attack group. The breaching group is called either the breaching group or uh, the depth attack group. Um, the if you have an air firepower group, that's your uh, rotary wing that's been attached to to your organization. That's you know doing obviously delivering air firepower. Artillery is a part of the firepower group. So when you're doing intelligence assessments, and you come across these terms, which uh, could be um, delivered to you through any number of channels, it gives you a you, you figure out what the name of the group is it gives you a pretty good idea of what the composition of that group's going to be and what the mission it's going to be doing on the battlefield and when you're looking at fighting an organization that wants to fight like the PLA that is a key intelligence task that is you get a lot of information for not much effort if you figure out uh, what the group is just figure out its name that's all you got to do so instead of for us you know we're we give it a name like Task Force 151 or whatever the case is. It's a, you know, a very weird military-specific name that doesn't really say anything. If you're out there uh, looking at a, a Chinese or Alvanan formation and you you discover that they are their uh, group name is the Frontline Attack Group, you can be pretty darn sure that they are going to be the fixing force and you can then deduce from there hey they're probably gonna have a lot of mech infantry they're gonna have a lot of uh mortars and short-range artillery stuff like that and so you can make some very good intelligence assessments just based off of the uh figuring out the name of the group and then just a reminder for our listeners uh you should always definitely double double check that with other intelligence too <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah don't fall no. for a deception operation guys yeah exactly right like the, the your clever uh, counterpart over in the PLA just swaps the name of the group and and wins the battle single-handedly. <laughs> um, right. So I as I read through the chapter on information warfare, uh, some concepts popped out as interesting and I think worth diving into more. So uh, the first of these concepts is uh, the view that psychological warfare is considered a fourth operational mode, so on par with land, air, and sea warfare. Uh, this is similar to our concept of domains in the U.S., and those are land, sea, air, space, and cyberspace. So does the PLA doctrine view space and cyberspace as domains, or is it rolled underneath the umbrella of information netized warfare? Yeah, or uh, sorry, or do they elevate psychological warfare up to its own domain, and that's kind of indicative of how important they see it? Yeah, the... Uh... The the and this this is all relatively recent. Uh, the proper term now for psychological warfare is the cognitive domain, and it that is a, a specific discrete domain that has the same uh, basic characteristics as land, sea, and air. So uh, that's a really good example of the emphasis that the PLA puts on what we would call psyops or or uh, information warfare. All of that stuff happens in the cognitive domain in uh, PLA thinking. They uh, space and cyber are also both their own discrete domains, um, along with the the ones that I mentioned earlier, uh, 
uh, biology is one of them. Uh, the Arctic is one of them it, specifically. I'm not really sure why that's called out uniquely, but yeah. So all of these things are are given domain status, and they have their own uh, unique uh, slice of this multi-domain pie that the the PLA is trying to bake. And from an application perspective, is this really different from Western thought? When I read through it, it struck me as simply disrupting the adversary's command control. Um, I'd be very curious what your, your take on it is. The uh, the basic ideas are pretty much the same, right? You want to attack your opponent's situational awareness, situational understanding. You want to attack his morale, his uh, readiness, his will to fight. Uh, you want to erode the unit's cohesion. All of this stuff, we do, right? This is all um, a pretty U.S. 101 warfighting. The uh, the big difference, I think, or a way, way to articulate the difference is the level of emphasis that the PLA places on this stuff. Um, for the U.S., we have, we have an op order and it has... Uh, an annex or an extra paragraph or something that's talking about psychological operations at the tactical level. And it's important, but it's not the centerpiece of the op order, right? It's, it's a, I don't want to say it's an afterthought, but it's a, a secondary component to the overall operation, which usually when we do a, a tactical operation, it's a whole lot of very aggressive maneuver supported by a whole lot of, of joint firepower. Like that's how we like to fight, right? Uh, a simple plan executed audaciously or whatever that axiom is. For the Chinese, the way they, they want to, the way they, try to plan an operation is uh, try to establish how they want the operation to unfold from the perspective of the enemy commander. So kind of the same, you arrive at the same place. Ultimately it's just kind of flipping the, uh, the, um, the level of emphasis. So whereas we are dictating what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And, and uh, very simple, straightforward terms, the PLA commander instead wants the enemy commander to perceive x y and z and once we are inside of the enemy's decision cycle then we can exploit that that advantage through through aggressive combined arms maneuver so like i said the basic ideas are pretty much the same it's just the i would call it the level of emphasis that uh that cognitive battle gets at least in pla doctrine it's much much higher than it is in uh in the United States. Um, now, the, the follow-up question to that is how well do they actually do this stuff? And the, that is a much more difficult question to answer. We, we struggle with seeing this stuff uh, out in the world just because it's, it, it's one of those things that's not easy for our, our intelligence apparatus to really assess to see very well. Um, we know what they say in their doctrine, and it is aggressive. They think they can do a lot of things by dominating the cognitive domain. How that might actually work in a tactical engagement is, a, and this is just my opinion, I think that the while they, they can achieve a lot, I think that they will not achieve the levels that they envision doctrinally. And the implications for that is, hey, if we, we haven't uh, successfully eroded the enemy's situational understanding at the point that we want, where, where do we go from here? What's the what's the follow-on plan for that? And that's where I think the the differences in our way of planning and the PLAA's way way of planning are are most apparent. Is our plan is well, we're going to get aggressive. We're going to start shooting stuff, and we're going to uh, we're going to empower lower level leaders to make decisions on the spot, and all this stuff that's fundamental to U.S. warfighting. And the PLAA is not as comfortable with. Uh, with that kind of dynamic change and whatnot. They recognize that they need to be, but they're not there yet. That's that's uh, one of the key shortfalls that we assess in their, their leadership is um, when the plan doesn't necessarily go like it was written down in, in the in the CP, what's the next step after that? They're, they're uh, much less comfortable with that environment than we are. So there's no... Um... So in the last 20 years, they haven't really developed that mission command type of culture that the army army has currently they uh they recognize that it is a incredibly important thing to develop and they've uh, in one of the uh most important documents we've ever gotten out of a g's office was it 
it's called uh, the five incapables or the five cannots. And essentially it was asking the PLA, why, why can't your lieutenants do mission command is what it, it boils down to. Um, so they recognize that the mission command philosophy, what they call decentralized command is incredibly important, but uh, this idea I mentioned earlier of organizational inertia, they are feeling the effects of that. They just, they have not yet really realized the, all of the things that one needs to be in order to, to be really agile at the, those lower echelons. Um, now, that being said, I think it would be a mistake to assume that they're always going to be behind the curve on that stuff. I think that the PLA in recent history tends to do what it sets out to do. And so I think it's a good bet that eventually they're, they become a lot more comfortable with that, what we would call mission command, what they call decentralized command. But um, it's an ongoing process and, and it is a painful one from, from what we can tell. So Brad, you do a lot of reading in terms of how you know, the PLA it reads our doctrine or reads strategy in general and then interprets it. When they do their interpretation, do they, so let's say like uh, the U.S., published something and we mistakenly view a case study or a previous battle and draw the wrong conclusions. When the CCP or the PLA looks at that, are they taking our wrong conclusions at, at face value and moving forward from there? Or are they going to look at it and how likely are they to see that our initial assessment of a case study was wrong and it, it's actually this, so they're going to go with this? Yeah, that that is a very difficult question to answer. And uh, the reason why is this gets into the domain of propaganda versus actual military thought. And there's a usually you can tell the difference, right? You can tell when it's just a, a CCTV guy writing a puff piece on, you know, some brigade doing something versus, hey, this is a, a staff officer in this brigade and he's writing his actual thoughts about uh, what actually happened at this training exercise. Usually it's very clear which is which. Um, but when it comes to the United States, it gets very, very muddled. Um, and the reason is I the... I, the Chinese have a, a challenging, I mean, we have a challenging relationship with them too. They have a, a challenging relationship with the United States. They're, the euphemism in Chinese writing, in PLA writing for uh, the United States is a powerful enemy, a strong enemy. Anytime you see a powerful enemy or strong enemy, they refer, that's their uh, depiction, that's their description of the United States, right? So, that's a good uh, way to understand how they view the United States. It's a very, very scary opponent. It's a very capable military that has a, a lot of uh, a lot of history and a lot, it can do a lot of very scary things. Um, so there's there there's this dynamic of number one respect and admiration for the United States and how well the U.S. military does some stuff. And then that that's fighting against this uh, this idea that we're there's a, a non-zero chance we're actually going to have to fight these people at some point in the distant future, and so we have to be better than them if we're going to win, right? So we probably shouldn't be hero worshiping them. We shouldn't be, you know, giving ourselves. Uh, pumping our tires a little bit, maybe uh, looking at advantages that we can uh, exploit, stuff like that. So what this ends up looking like is you can tell a lot of the time when you're looking at a, at a piece of writing what the author's biases are, whether he wants to talk about how great the United States is or about how incompetent the United States is and, and uh, you know, the the weaknesses that are there to be exploited. So that makes it harder for us just because it's not as clear cut as propaganda versus tactical talk as it is, you know, when the Chinese are talking about themselves. So that's a long way to get around to, to what I think is a, the interesting point you just drew out is what do the Chinese think about our doctrine and what are our, our uh, emerging capabilities and a bunch of decisions that we made recently, like reallocating a whole lot of forces to the Pacific and stuff like that. They are, a lot of their thoughts on our doctrine is available publicly and pretty easy to find. And they argue about it. They are, some folks think, man, these guys are on it. Some folks think these Americans are idiots. They're not going to be able to pull any of this stuff off. They look at our 
they watch our exercises, particularly in the Pacific, very closely. They watch our naval deployments, our and naval exercises, uh, very very closely, and have a lot of thoughts on it. And usually, the thoughts are something along the lines of: number one, it's crazy how the resource levels these guys get. They're so lucky that they get to to train at this level, and and uh, they have so much train so many training resources available to them how lucky they are number two is our weapons are better than their weapons this is and this is where you get into that is it propaganda or not they consistently downplay the capabilities of u.s systems and consistently uh upscale those of chinese systems and you know it whether or not that's actually representative reality is kind of uh it's not irrelevant but it's not really the point of this discussion right it's more like um an arm wrestling contest kind of thing right we're very proud of all of these systems that we've bought and we want to compare them favorably against the biggest guy in the room who happens to be the united states the third area i think is and this is just most interesting to me i'm i'm a history nerd and they have become recently absolutely fascinated with studying U.S. operations in the Pacific during World War II. And why is that? Well, in World War II, our our mission essentially was to fight our way all the way across the Pacific and deal with an opponent who was, I I don't know how far, 5,000 miles or whatever, how far away, that was dug in on a zillion different little islands all over the Pacific and intended to contest our advance every inch of that 5,000 miles. And how did, what did we do? What did the Japanese do? What did we do right? What do we do badly? And if what I think is really interesting is their uh, assessments of what the Japanese did right and wrong. Because that, I think, is informing a lot of what they, how they plan to fight a very similar looking fight in the Western Pacific against the same opponent. But hundred years later, you know, however many years later. So their general takeaway from that is the United States did logistics unbelievably well. The United States eventually leveraged our uh, industrial advantage to great effect. The Japanese made very, very bad strategic decisions, especially early on in the war, but fought absolutely brilliantly tactically. Um, Japanese were absolutely terrible at logistics and paid the price for it and made some very poor big decisions throughout the war that essentially cast the die that was it made their defeat eventually inevitable and so looking at it from our our perspective us being the chinese in this case how can we avoid making those catastrophic decisions how can we emulate the tactical successes that the japanese had how can we undermine the American industrial base and how can we disrupt or, or at least uh, create parity in this, uh, the difference in uh, logistical or sustainment backbone, the advantage that the United States has there. So it, anyway, I, the, this recent uh, uh, spate of World War II focused stuff, I think is just absolutely fascinating. And um, I think my perception is there's a lot more interest in that stuff in the PLA than there is about debating the merits of, of multi-domain operations versus MDPW and stuff like that, which makes sense because both of those concepts are kind of untested and there's not a whole lot to really be debated about them. But we can have debates all day long about what happened in World War II. Um, so I'd like to just round out the conclusion of our interview by uh, going back to Ukraine real quick and discussing what the PLA is learning from that war. I know we've touched on it briefly in other parts of this interview, but I figure this is a topic that's worth uh, more attention. So from from your uh, perch, what, what are you seeing? What are you, you guys assessing as the lessons the PLA are drawing from Ukraine? I know we had touched on the importance of ammunition expenditures and force reconstitution as two of those. Are, are there other factors? Yeah, uh, I'll start off by uh, giving ourselves a plug. Um, a colleague of mine in the Foreign Military Studies office named Peter Wood and I have been, since the start of the Ukraine war, we've been writing uh, short pieces on on what the Chinese are or might be learning about uh, modern war based on their study of Ukraine. And that's, that is all available on, um, it, I think it's behind a CAC wall cause it's CUI, but it's all available in class, um, through the TRADOC G2 landing zone 
uh, the China landing zone. So anyone who's interested in this stuff, I think we have 350 pages of this stuff now. It's it's a lot of material. Um, so a lot of that stuff is there, but we've been uh, gradually collating this into more concise, more definitive lessons learned. So uh, the two that you just mentioned are two of the big ones. Uh, certainly the uh, ongoing Russian struggles with, with recruiting, reconstitution, all that stuff has thrown up some big alarm bells and already caused some major muscle movements in, in how the, uh, the CPC wants to do business. Um, some other good examples, I think, uh, looking down more at, uh, at the tactical fight or operational fight, the notably ineffective Russian strike campaign to kick off the war is that's a big deal. Um, the Russian Russian missiles are fine. They're very capable missiles. They they will hit what they are aimed at, and they have a variety of countermeasures to beat ABM systems and so on. The missiles weren't the problem. The problem was the targeting. The targeting was abysmal. It was based on maps that were years old in some cases, images that were years old. They did not achieve any of those paralysis effects they were looking for. They did not really destroy anything of of significant military value. And so the Chinese are looking at this and then, you know, you look at your, your own campaign plan and every single Chinese campaign plan starts with the firepower strike campaign. It's the, the, the big thing that kicks off a military operation and they have invested accordingly, right? They have their own service level organization to rain down ballistic missiles on stuff. So that's, I, I would argue that's probably the biggest uh, strategic operational takeaway is the effectiveness of that firepower strike campaign is only as good as your targeting. And if you're wanting to achieve all those great effects of, in the cognitive domain and all that other stuff, your targeting has to be uh, real time or near real time. It has to be precise. It has to be um uh, very closely tied to the shooter. All of that stuff that we we knew beforehand, right? We had this is all stuff that we were aware existed, but um, I don't think we had a real clear example of how important not missile stuff is with regard to the, the the firepower strike campaign construct. Another really important data point is, and this is getting down into the weeds at lower echelons, is man isn't preventive maintenance and lower level logistics important. I call it shit your first sergeant said, right? It's all this stuff that it, it's so irritating to do on a daily basis. But when it's actually time to roll out, it really matters. And we saw Russian vehicles just run out. It, they they either due to uh, maintenance issues, due to a lack of, of uh, overland logistics, or just due to crews not knowing what the hell they were doing. The these they had a huge numerical advantage that they were unable to exploit because the vehicles just couldn't drive where they needed to go, and the PLA is going to look at that and think, man, what what's our level of readiness really at? Do we have the same uh, issues with institutional corruption and incompetence at lower level leadership and all that stuff that that basically torpedoed the Russian invasion before it really got started? And how relevant is that if we were to embark on our own adventure? Would the same thing happen to us? And how can we prevent that? And the obvious answer is all that shit your first sergeant said. You got to do all that stuff every day. Um, the inane blocking and tackling and maintaining a military unit. And the the last thing uh, on a swing back in a completely different direction, uh, the effects of economic hardening and the effects of uh, global um, opposition to uh, 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 action like for example, invading Ukraine. Russia, their economy is, I wouldn't say it's screaming along, but it also hasn't uh, suffered the the grand implosion that I think a lot of Western audiences were hoping for. Um, they still have substantial currency reserves. The, the life in general in Russia is not all that disrupted. So 
as far as the Russians are concerned, the their efforts at economic hardening have worked about as well as they probably could have, right? China is very conscious of the world's, their views of potential Chinese aggressive actions, both in the region and globally. And they're also aware that they are far more dependent on export markets and global trade in general than the Russians are. The Chinese economy is predicated on shipping out obscene amounts of manufactured goods to the entire world all over the place through very, very small, potentially vulnerable sea lanes for the most part. And that represents a significant vulnerability when you're talking about uh, what the world can do to you in response to a, a military action that they want to resist. And so the studying the effects of economic hardening, how, how Russia did it, how uh, to mitigate the effects of a global reaction to, to something that they don't like, and uh, how, in particular, how to maintain that the all-important internal stability um, in the face of, of uh, a potential economic hardship that is, is brought on by wide-level sanctions or trade cutoff or, or whatever you want to look at. That is something that the CPC is going to highlight as a uh, a real big takeaway and expect to see some pretty big changes in how in Chinese monetary policy, budgetary policy, et cetera, as a, a result of this stuff. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I look forward to getting you back for a future episodes so we can discuss some of the findings you and your colleagues are, are going to distill from this conflict in the future. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. It's there's a, there's a lot to unpack. So it's uh and it's it, like everything China, it's, it's changing rapidly. So there's always something new to talk about. This concludes part two of our two-part episode on ATP 7-100.3, Chinese Tactics. Please note that the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Tradeout G2, or the Army Foundry platform. Attached to the show notes are the transcripts for this episode, as well as a list of definitions for terms or acronyms we use. We hope this episode motivated the intelligence professionals out there listening and got your creative juices flowing for your next field exercise. I highly encourage you to visit both the China and Russia landing pages run by Tradeout G2 for more information. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please do us a favor and recommend it to someone else. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episode topics, please send us an email at hindsight.podcast.afp at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, I am your host, Vu Tran, signing off from Fort Liberty, North Carolina.